Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 930. To begin today's show, David Lorelo welcomes Bruce Miles and Mark Gonzalez, a pair of sports writers with a long history of covering Chicago baseball. The trio dive deep into the Cubs and White Sox and the complicated baseball culture of a two-team town like Chicago. They talk about the differences in ownership between the clubs, as well as the on-field managers in Tony LaRussa and David Ross. Bruce and Mark also share stories of covering past managers like Lou Pinella, Ozzie Guillen, and Joe Madden, and what it can be like to be confronted by players that you wrote critically about. Finally, they touch on the respective reputations surrounding the Cubs and White Sox fan bases. I think both fan bases, to me, are very knowledgeable. White Sox fans, like Mark said, definitely, I think, more uh, critical of their own team, and, and, and they let you know about it, and they let you know if they think your paper website is not covering them as much as they do the Cubs. <laughs> fair assessment. Very fair assessment. In the second half, Ben Clemens sits down with Kevin Goldstein to learn more about the MLB draft, which is coming up this weekend. Kevin recently wrote a piece about what goes on inside a major league draft room, and he shares a lot of insight about the all-hands-on-deck chaos that occurs. They also talk about things like courtesy picks, the challenges of the draft schedule, and the importance of the defensive spectrum when it comes to evaluating players' future. Kevin also reminds Ben and us that each pick is about both talent and value, and that while every draft will be unpredictable, some things are already set. The, the, the overwhelming majority, 90 plus something percent of the picks you hear come off the board when you are watching or listening to the draft next week, starting on Sunday, the deal's been verbally agreed upon before the pick is made. But before we get to these great conversations, I must point you in the direction of the Fangraph store. If you enjoy what we do, and I sure hope so if you're listening to this podcast, the best way you can support is by buying an ad-free membership. Not only does the website become even more helpful and awesome when browsing it without ads, but it helps us keep doing more great baseball analysis. You can, of course, also check out things like our mugs, shirts, and hats, which are just as easy to recommend. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guests are Mark Gonzalez and Bruce Miles, a pair of longtime Chicago sports scribes. And rather than running down some of their experience, why don't I just hand it over to Bruce and Mark to say a little bit about your history covering the two baseball teams? Well, I'll take it from here. This is Bruce. Uh, I've been a lifelong Chicago when I covered the Cubs for 22 years from 1998, the Sosa-McGuire-Kerry-Wood year, until 2019, after which I retired. I started covering Major League Baseball as a backup writer in 1989, and covering the weekends of both teams, the Cubs and the White Sox, and have done a few other things like some pro hockey, some NFL, and some uh, women's sports. More recently, as a semi-retired guy with a group called Athletes Unlimited, I'm covering some softball. So baseball, softball, just can't get it out of my system. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, this is Mark Gonzalez. I've been very lucky. Uh, I arrived in Chicago in 2005, and many White Sox fans know that was their uh, World Series championship year. Covered the White Sox for eight and a half years and switched over to the Cubs and was able to be one of uh, a select few that were able to document their first World Series title since uh, <laughs> 1908. In 2016, Bruce's history with the Cubs and White Sox goes deeper than me, but I've covered baseball for the last 30 years. Started off with the San Francisco Giants in 1992, which was a very turbulent year. As some know, they almost moved the Tampa Bay-St. Pete area. Then they signed Barry Bonds. It really uh, gave the franchise a much-needed facelift. Then in 2000, I went to the Arizona, uh, joined the Arizona Republic and covered the Diamondbacks and once again, I was lucky enough to cover their World Series title in 2001. And then I came to the Chicago Tribune in 2005. The, the transition was seamless uh, for two reasons. One was everybody here was so good to me. Uh, they remember me from my visits covering the Giants and Diamondbacks. And then also my wife uh, grew up in Highland Park and her family and immediate uh, friends were so generous to us. We moved here, but uh, my my history in this in sports goes back to you know 1980, starting off at the Peninsula Times Tribune, which is now defunct, and and covering a lot of high school sports. I was uh, very fortunate to cover a lot of great athletes during that period. Also covered a lot of college football and college baseball. I covered the uh, 19. 
88 Stanford World Series team featuring Mike Messina, among others, and then joined the Mercury in 1992. So again, uh, longtime sports scribes, Mark, a little bit less time in Chicago, a matter of decades. Here's a, a question that I think maybe is a little bit challenging for, for either or both of you. Is Chicago at its heart more of a Cubs town or a White Sox town? Well, I can uh, take it from here being a lifelong guy. I think it's more of a, of a Cubs town simply because of the uh, the popularity they gained by being on WGN, the Superstation, decades ago. You've got Wrigleyville. You've got the whole aura of, quote, unquote, beautiful Wrigley Field. Although the White Sox, they do have a hardcore group of fans. Uh, we saw what the parade looked like after 2005 when the World Series. I was uh, astounded by that uh, as a native South Sider and somebody who grew up watching a lot of White Sox games. But I would have to say it's more of a of a Cubs town being from here. Mark, what do you think being the uh, the outsider guy with maybe a little bit better perspective than I? I concur with, with your thoughts, especially just the, the volume of fans, not just here, but everywhere. But it seems like everybody's roots were here that, that branch out and go to other places. They grew up uh, as Northsiders, and, and you just look at the history. And somehow, some some ways, I think the fact they went so long without a title really fostered that that fandom that, you know, it's, they always sold, could sell hope that they're one day going to win it. And they eventually did. But I think the brand, you know, WGN going nationwide and the fact that they, they embrace so many fans all, all over the country and other parts of the world really built their fan base to where they have quite a hearty gathering uh, across the nation when they go to uh, towns on the road. But the White Sox, uh, there's there's certainly a hearty group, and you hear from them when things go bad, or you, they they let you know they don't like something you wrote or said. So um, they're out there, and I think that this current group of uh, players will really help expand their fan base. Right, right. I mean, nationally, the Cubs are certainly a much bigger brand, and there's also a perception too that Wrigley is a place where people go to you know to have fun. And that's that's not a negative. Everybody loves to go to a ballpark and have fun. But is it maybe fair to say that White Sox fans are a little bit more devoted and hardcore than the average Cub fan? Or is that a misperception on my part? I think one of the uh, perceptions in Chicago over the years, and this goes back decades even, that the uh, White Sox fans were much more knowledgeable about the game and much more critical uh, about their team then were Cubs fans who, like you say, used to go out and sit in the bleachers and drink beer and all that kind of stuff. But, I, you know, both fan bases are very knowledgeable. And, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, maybe White Sox fans maybe rationalize the lower attendance that way, saying, look, we're not these dumb Cub fans. We're going to stay away from the ballpark. We're not going if they put out a bad product. But I think both fan bases, to me, are very knowledgeable. White Sox fans, like Mark said, definitely, I think, more uh, critical of their own team. And, and, and they let you know about it. And they let you know if they think your paper website is not covering them as much as they do the Cubs. <laughs> fair assessment. Very fair assessment. And uh, I will say that uh, White Sox fans, uh, they don't tolerate mediocrity for, for any length of time. And that's that's a credit to them. You know, we look at the World Series in 2005, but in 2007, they lost 90 games. And, you know, I advocated that they break things up and retool it. But uh, Kenny Williams, to his credit, you know, made some change, a little changes, little changes and got them a division title. I thought they should have gone further, but they didn't. And then uh, they've really regressed until recently with this current renaissance and getting back to the the uh, the core basics, you know, hitting on some draft picks and, and building a nucleus that the fans can really follow and feel a part of. Yeah, I live in uh, Boston. I've worked out of this market now for most of the last three decades. And Boston fans have changed somewhat since they broke the quote-unquote curse. Have Cubs fans changed in any way since they broke their own? 
Yeah, you know what, uh, Dave and Mark, uh, one of the first questions I asked Anthony Rizzo in spring training of 2017 was, are you guys going to be no longer beloved? Are people going to hate you like they do the Yankees and now the Red Sox? But I think Cubs fans are very angry right now. I think that the expectations from the World Series were naturally high. And given the job, the sales job that Theo Epstein, Jason McLeod, and Jed Hoyer did, fans expected more. And, and frankly, they deserve more. People are Cubs fans right now are very angry over what What's happening at the team? They didn't expect to be talking about selling off Baez, Bryant, Contreras, Kimbrell, Rizzo, whoever it might be at this point. They expected to be contending for World Series titles for a decade, and it's not happened. So, yes, 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 uh, from my uh, perspective, being a lifelong Chicagoan, yeah, they have changed. Yeah, and I, I put an asterisk next, next to their division title uh, last year. Give them credit for getting off to a good start. In a, in a pandemic, but the the fact is they've regressed since that 2016 World Series title, and I don't think this this fan base you know really aspired for them to be average, and they've really really re regressed each year. I mean, you look at the Oakland A's. I point to them in in the late 80s and how they got to three consecutive World Series titles, winning only one, but they were there all the time. And this group, it's really regressed and you can cut them some slack for 2017 because they're coming off an ex exhaustive season that they went seven games to win a world series title but they've really slipped a bit and, and i think that fans finally have reached the boiling point as bruce alluded to and, and rightfully so because it, it's one thing to, to slip up maybe one or two years but to have this serious regression it's baffling yeah is most of the criticism happening at the major Chicago papers, websites, you know, whole media environment. Has it been fair thus far? You know, are they getting hammered correctly, if that's if that makes sense? Yeah, I think so. You know what? I don't even know if it's uh, cranked up to the level where it should be. Chicago has always been known, and I think it's a bad rap as a soft media town, but I think it's been, as the, the great writer Gene Wojciechowski wrote, firm but fair. It's, you know, not a sensationalistic media town, but I think that the criticism could be amped up or ramped up a little bit more, and I think it will be, and a lot of it is directed you know, not toward the players, not toward David Ross, not toward Judd Hoyer, but the ownership, the Ricketts family, who have, and I've never seen this frittered away, so much goodwill in such a short time. I agree with what Mark said. 2017, you cut them some slack. Not only the, the World Series hangover, but it's awfully hard to repeat these days. So they went to the NLCS that year, but since then, and then it's been the same old story, same old song and dance with the, the, the offense disappearing and these players not reaching their levels. But I think the criticism has been fair, but I, I think you're going to see it amp up here. Yeah, ownership for the Cubs has been a little controversial at times. So too has been with the White Sox. You know, how are people viewing that ownership group? No, I think the, the the White Sox ownership over the years, I think since they won the World Series in 2005, people also expected more. The, the, the ownership of the White Sox, Jerry Reinsdorf, uh, has owned the team since uh, they bought the team in late 1980, also won six championships with the Bulls. And uh, so I, I think that given the fact that they were looking for a rebuild like the Cubs did. And it looks like it's starting to take hold despite all of these numerous injuries they've had. So I think right now the heat is off a little bit. I think there was some heat early on with the controversial hiring of Tony La Russa. People maybe wanted or definitely wanted a younger, more with it manager. The whole DUI situation with Tony really put a negative light on things. But the fact that the team is in first place, the fact that the team has overcome a lot of injuries, I think has taken a lot of the uh, the heat off of uh, ownership and management with the White Sox. DUI aside, Mark, do you feel that Tony La Russa is maybe getting a little too much criticism given how well this club is performing? I would say a, a little bit too much. Fascinating landscape with the White Sox because as was reinforced, uh, the chairman makes all the calls in the end. And in this case, Tony La Russa, that was all his. His fingerprints were smothered on this. And we see where Tony has weathered the storm and some of it being fueled by the media in some forms and, and rightfully so. But I think the end result is Tony has navigated his team through injuries, some controversies, and they're in first place. And I think that uh, there's something to be said for him holding firm on some of his, his uh, stances, uh, namely the Mercedes incident, 
but they're in first place and he really hasn't, you know, whined or cried about the injuries or I can't wait till we get these guys back. He's dealt very well with the, the cards he's been given. So I think that he deserves a lot of credit. Certainly they're not finished yet, but I think they're in pretty good shape. And, and you look at Tony's, uh, you know, track record and this season, I think other than the slip up and not knowing the rules for the extra inning game and the debacle in, in Minnesota a few months ago, he's done a pretty good job. And what about the, the man across town? David Ross. Uh, <laughs> David Ross, yes. Yes, uh, everybody. You know, it was funny that the, the Cubs fired a guy and hired a younger guy who goes by grandpa. So that was kind of a, <laughs> a little bit of an ironic thing back then. But I, I think that um, there was a honeymoon period. I think last year was just awfully difficult to judge anybody uh, by, uh, as Mark kind of alluded earlier, the, the pandemic season, 60 games. But I, I think, and Mark can, I'm sure, attest to this, there have been a lot of criticisms lately about in-game strategy, uh, David Ross's uh, penchant for double switching in situations where maybe you don't need to do that. Uh, we're going to see the, the test is coming because when you look at a guy like Jake Arietta, who has struggled mightily over his last however many starts really since May, you know, what's Ross going to do there? People are starting to clamor for some things to change a little bit. So uh, I, I'm sure Mark could add to that situation too. But I, I, I think that uh, David is starting to come in now for a little bit of criticism that wasn't there before. I thought last year you did a terrific job just holding the fort, emphasizing the importance of these guys going through the correct protocols. They did not have a positive test among their players. A lot to be said for that. And they got off to a fast start. So I think that was a big reason why they won the division. But as Bruce said earlier, uh, there have been some curious moves made this year, especially with the double switches early in games. Uh, he pulled Arietta in the second inning of a game in Milwaukee, uh, brought in a pitcher as part of a double switch, and then pinch hits for him in the third inning. So there's been some head-scratching moves. I wouldn't say his moves have been all bad, but it's a normal season, and uh, you're going to have more opportunities to be scrutinized. And managers certainly get scrutinized in Chicago. Bruce, you wrote an article just the other day that caught my eye where you weighed in on all of the managers that you have covered in Chicago. And there are some pretty interesting names in there. Oh, yeah. You know what? And I think that anybody, any beat writer, any media person who has gotten to cover Dusty Baker, Lou Pinella, and Joe Madden ought to consider themselves very, very lucky because that's three of the most interesting human beings that I've ever been around, in addition to being terrific managers, whether you like their managerial style or not. So those three guys stand up. But yeah, I've run the gamut. I've covered some awfully good Cubs teams, and I've covered some terrible Cubs teams. Uh, the first guy I covered, and I think is a prince of a guy, is Jim Riggleman. He's kind of uh, America's interim manager. He's had been saddled with some very bad teams, the Padres before coming to the Cubs, the uh, the, the Cubs after they collapsed in 98 and Jim was fired. So it kind of runs the gamut there from the big names, the Maddens, the Bakers, the Pinnells, Don Baylor uh, being another big name guy to guys you might not have really remembered or care to remember uh, when, when the, during the rebuild, Dale Swaim and Ricky Renteria, and before that, uh, Mike Quaddy uh, in the last year of the Henry era. So it's kind of run the gamut of the, the big name superstar managers to the, oh, I forgot he was the manager. Yeah, Mark, which was your favorite to cover? Wow. I mean, in, in this town, you have no shortage of personalities. When I got here in 2005, I had Ozzie Gann. It was almost too easy for the writers if he didn't have a story idea because he was bound to say something controversial or, or very colorful. But I think the one thing that was lost in, uh, he did a magnificent job of managing that 2005 World Series team. He knew how to uh, step on the pedal as far as the starters go, something we don't see now in baseball. And he knew when to, when to pull them. And I think there, that it's a, a, a very important art for a manager to craft but he knew that team very well and I had one veteran scout tell me that he had never seen a manager have such a great knack for handling pitchers as Ozzy did during that stretch now uh, the last year and a half it got pretty ugly at the end there and we saw another side of Ozzy he was pretty frustrated angry uh, mostly with Kenny Williams uh, contract he didn't get there's more stuff we can get into that I won't won't but I think the sad thing was Ozzy was a very, very good manager 
but sometimes that took a, a, a sidelight to other things. And then switching over to the Cubs, uh, wow. I mean, starting off with Dale Swain, I, I moved over in the middle of the 2013 season and I wasn't you know, privy to some stuff that happened prior to the things that led to his dismissal. You know, Bruce can, Bruce knows all about that with, you know, the handling of Rizzo and Starling Castro and the threats to be sent down and some other uh, things. Uh, some other players that were handled, maybe not in the, in the eyes of the man, management or front office that, that should have been handled a little better, namely guys like Brett Jackson, but, then they go to Ricky Renteria, and that was a, a curious 2014 season where they actually cut down the number of losses by you know, almost a dozen, and yet he gets fired because uh, the big ticket guys out there and Joe Madden. Luckily, I, I knew Joe a little bit before he came to Chicago, and he was uh, a fascinating guy, and, and he did his job. He brought them a World Series title. Some things kind of got haywire in the end, but I don't think Joe got enough credit for some of the things he had to navigate. I'm going to agree with Gonzo on that because people like to point to Game 7 where he pulled Hendricks and made some of the other curious bullpen decisions, but the Cubs were down three games to one in that series, and they were ripe to be put away, and Joe was the same guy. Gonzo will attest, we went in to see the manager before every game. The beat writers got a little seance, and that's probably the right word when you're talking with Madden, <laughs> and the music was going. He was relaxed. He talk about anything but baseball. That kind of approach, I think, filtered down to the players. The players saw that their manager was not panicking, and so they didn't panic. And I think Joe deserves a lot of credit for keeping the Cubs' heads above water after they were down uh, down three games to one in that World Series. Right, and Dusty Baker is similar to Joe Madden in that you know he's fascinating. He has a million things to talk about besides baseball. And I was struck, Bruce, by you mentioning in your recent column that Dusty never seemed comfortable in Chicago. I think, and maybe Gonzo can talk about this, Dusty's a Cali guy all the way. In fact, his first year on the beat, he'd have his watch set to California time. It was two hours behind Chicago. I said, Dusty, what are you doing? It's not 8 o'clock in the morning. It's 10 o'clock. But uh, I just think that he had a real comfort zone in San Francisco, and we would always see that when we would uh, go out to the Bay Area. All the reporters would gather around Dusty, and it was just kind of a love fest. But it was a little bit tougher on media town here. After 03, Things changed and got a little bit ugly. The whole Bartman game, the blowing the uh, the lead against the Marlins, and never really getting back, never getting back to the playoffs under Dusty. The 0-4 team had kind of a negative vibe, but us against them, us against the world mentality. So after 0-4, things went downhill, and a lot of the focus, a lot of the negative focus was on Dusty. Hey, he ruined this pitcher. Hey, he ruined that pitcher. Those pitchers will tell you they'd go through a wall for Dusty Baker, and I've heard them say it. So it, it just, uh, after 03, it, it started to spiral downhill, and it was a real shame because Dusty, one of the most interesting, one of the most passionate, and one of the most compassionate uh, guys that I've been around, he really has the gift of um, talking to people, ma making people feel good about themselves. Yeah, I was lucky. I had Dusty as my manager for seven of the eight seasons I covered the Giants and it was an education to say the least. And you really got to learn how his life experiences really helped him manage teams as well as help beat writers understand how leaders go about their business. And yeah, like most great leaders, you take a little bit of everything that you learned from some of your, 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 previous leaders and apply him, but he had his own style too. And I, I agree with Bruce quite a bit as far as, you know, he's, he's a West coast guy, but I think he came to Chicago with a mission. He knew the mission, but I don't think he know the enormity of, of the situation and how much people were dying here for a, a championship title. I, I honestly thought that after he left San Francisco, he should have probably sat out a year, but he knew his stock was high, even though the Giants did not win the 2002 World Series. And I think he was on a mission to prove the Giants wrong that, you know, it wasn't all his fault, as a couple of important members of their ownership group believe. So it was kind of fast forward situation there for him when he came to the Cubs in 2003. But he was the guy that they targeted to take them all the way. And, and you know, he was five outs away from getting to that last big stage. 
And just to uh, expand on Mark's point there, Lou Pinella faced the same thing. Lou had managed in New York, Yankee Stadium, played for the Yankees, the world's biggest stage. He got to Wrigley Field, and he was just awed by day game crowds of 40,000 going nuts in the 8th and ninth inning. I think Lou was a bit overwhelmed by the whole thing, and they had two very quick playoff exits in 07 and under and 08 under Lou, and, and I think that he was just so uptight that it really filtered down to the team. You saw that game where all the infielders in 08 had an error in, in that game, so yeah, the, the enormity of the situation when the Cubs had not won was so great that I, I really think that it did affect these managers who weren't quite used to what they were getting into. I was in Cincinnati once when Pinella was managing the Reds, and I saw him throw, I believe it was all three bases, <laughs> pull and throw all three bases. So I think we all have our, our Pinella stories. Bruce, you mentioned in, in your article that he was, and this is no big surprise, sometimes confrontational with the media. He could be one thing about Lou, and, and I'll say that about uh, Dusty and Don Baylor. Came up at the same time, late 60s, played into the 70s and 80s. He took care of his beat writers. Lou really loved the uh, the beat writers who were with the team every day. Uh, and kind of we all kind of got where we were coming from. A lot of the times when Lou would blow up would, would be with someone that he was unfamiliar with or somebody that he thought was just trying to get a rise out of him, which in a few cases that would happen. Mm -hmm. And whenever he said, look, uh, sir, you, you knew that uh, you were in trouble because a sir or a my friend meant that uh, Lou didn't like the question and he might go off on you by saying something like, we got to think we're stupid here or what kind of baseball do you think we play here? So uh, Lou was uh, really old school in the fact that he loved the traveling beat writers but uh, a lot of times he sensed that other people were trying just to get a rise out of him, which with Lou, you know, was easy to do. Yeah, I, I saw it a lot with Ozzy, too. It was it was gotten the point where it was almost a little scary because you'd have people come in and try to goad him into saying something. And, you know, with Ozzy, there was no filter. And a couple of times, a, a media relations a member would have to step in and say, hey, either make your point or this is off the record or please leave. Players do not always like what the media writes about them. Have there been any memorable issues there? In in Chicago with the Cubs, I don't recall a whole lot. Carlos Zambrano sometimes uh, would take issue, but Carlos was really a, a good guy at heart who just did some knuckleheaded things. Uh, you know, the guy is involved with building churches and in charities and so forth. But really, I... From a uh, a beat writer standpoint, the thing about being a beat writer is you show up every day, so you show your face whether you write something positive or negative, and anything that might have been disagreed with, you you, you hashed out man to man, and I, I can't really remember a whole lot of uh, players taking issue with things uh, simply because of the uh, the accountability factor. And 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 Mark, you've been a beat writer a long time too, and you know that that's a, a big part of the dynamic. Yeah, I think it was my third or fourth year covering the White Sox. I got to the clubhouse as soon as it opened once, and Brian Anderson said, what are you doing? And you're in your early. And he said, why are, you, why are you here the first one all the time? I said, well, it's part of my job. You know, if somebody doesn't like what I wrote, I'm here. Come at me. You know, let's just settle it. And he just didn't like the fact that I was always in there all the time. But, the you know, second thing is that's our job to get information or find out what's going on and why a certain player might be struggling or what is he doing to correct his flaws. It's part of our job. And Anderson had no idea about what our job entailed or just didn't like me being around, which, you know, tough sauce for him because, you know, he didn't last very long. And then, and then with the uh, Cubs, there were only two incidents, you know, about, about three, four years ago involving some players that are, you know, currently struggling now. One guy that didn't like, what I had tweeted about him starting at a certain position to find out whether the team had faith in him as a backup. And he kind of whined about it to me, but at least he, he sought me out. We agreed to disagree and moved on. Yeah. Mark, you mentioned tweeting. We are just about out of time here, but I think the two of you should maybe touch briefly on just how much the job of a beat writer has changed since the two of you broke into the business. Well, it's, it's been enormous and hey, it's part of the job. You gotta, you gotta, give the, the audience what they're looking for, what they want, you know, fill in the blanks and, and provide more information. And 
Uh, the one one problem I didn't have with Twitter that I've backed off of is just providing the play by play. I used to think that you know everybody didn't have access to a, a TV or radio, and that's certainly you know not the case all the time. So maybe lend perspective as far as maybe a guy should have been shaded more toward the where the ball was hit. Uh, give him an extra set of eyes and ears, and so that's that's one one area where I've kind of uh, policed myself on Twitter, but. Hey, it's part of the job, and, and you have to provide another outlet for for your audience. And it's it's just one of those things that you have to be on top of. It's an added layer to our duties, but I, I accept it. And and same thing for the blogs when you're writing and, and trying to uh, provide information that you can't get in print. Uh, what better form than to write those blogs? Yeah, I think uh, two things for me. It's the the internet, which led to the 24-hour news cycle and social media. Before, you'd go to the game as a beat writer. You'd uh, make your clubhouse rounds, talk to the manager. Then you'd go up, have a nice dinner, and then write your notebook, and then uh, uh, watch the game and follow your game story. Now you wolf down dinner because you've got to tweet out everything everybody said. You've got to get the early uh, uh, blog or get your notes up early. So it's really the, the news cycle is literally 24 hours where it used to not be that way when I first started and when Mark first started. And it's just now just the social media, the interaction with fans, which overall I think is a good thing. And one of the things I've always uh, prided myself is I always wrote for the readers. I never wrote to uh, impress other writers or to please my editors. I wrote for the fans. So I always uh, kind of enjoyed, as long as it was civil, uh, the back and forth on Twitter, Facebook, or email. So I think all of those things change so much, the internet and social media from the time that I started until now. Yeah, there is one more thing we we should touch on. Mark mentioned eyes and ears. I think we would be remiss not to touch on the broadcasters that the Cubs and White Sox have now, which frankly are as good as it gets, in my opinion, and even the history there with guys like uh, Harry Carey. Well, Chicago uh, broadcast history is so rich, and Harry Carey and Jack Brickhouse, uh, who we should not forget, in my opinion, is the the greatest uh, sports broadcaster in the history of Chicago. Jack Brickhouse did both Cubs and White Sox games on uh, WGN Channel 9 for years. But yeah, uh, what you have now in the Cubs booth is uh, John Boogshambi and Jim Deshays. Jim has such a dry wit, subtle sense of humor. There was a helicopter flying over one time, and he said, high chopper over the mound. And it was just kind of stuff like that that he would drop in. But I think that their um, their analytical approach is good, but I think you have to also be storytellers. And you, and I think they do a good job of uh, telling stories. So uh, I, I think it's, a, I, I really wish, and Mark, you may concur with this, keep it to two people in the booth. The Cubs have tried to shoehorn a third person into the booth every now and then, Whether and, and they're fine. They're, uh, by themselves, they're fine. Rick Sutcliffe, Ryan Dempster. But when you put three in the booth, I think three is a crowd for baseball. But overall, I think the uh, the, the quality of the, uh, the Cubs broadcast and the White Sox broadcast is very high, both on uh, radio and television. We had the uh, situation with Len Casper leaving the Cubs TV job, plum job, to go to do White Sox radio, but that's what he wanted to do. So uh, that that's my take on the whole thing. Great history in town here uh, with broadcasters, as I'm sure uh, Mark knows and can attest to as well. Yeah, I go back with Pat Hughes. I remember as a kid, or I should say kid, I was in high school when Pat would sit in these uh, on top of these wooden bleachers, calling high school games on on tape delay for KXRX in San Jose. And uh, Pat is just uh, a, a tremendous talent. I hope he gets in the Hall of Fame. He does a terrific job of working with ex players and and asking them what we should expect in certain situations or how they handle a certain pitcher. Uh, he's just so egoless, and I, I really hope he gets in the Hall of Fame. And then Len moving over to the White Sox. This shows you his, his passion for describing the action and, and replacing a, a, a cult hero and, and Farmio over there. Really some big shoes to fill, but he's done a terrific job. And, and, and then with Jason and, and Steve over there, they really have a great following uh, over there. And I think it's, it's very special, especially with, with how well the team is playing. Right. Farmy, of course, being, you know, the late, great Ed Farmer, 
And it's been appropriate that we got the Farmy rather than Ed because uh, Bruce has been calling Mark Gonzo <laughs> for the whole podcast. It brings me back to uh, Jared Saltalamachia saying to me once, he said, Dave, don't call me Jared. I'm salty. <laughs> Baseball players never call anybody by their first names. And to a certain degree, maybe that event happens with, with longtime baseball scribes. Well, Paul Sullivan <laughs> has always been sully, so I think there's something to that. There is something to that. Perfect time to close because we are definitely running over time. Bruce, Gonzo, thank you for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Welcome to this segment of Fangraphs Audio. I am a draft expert. Uh, no, that's wrong, actually. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joined by a draft expert, Kevin Goldstein. I know literally nothing about the draft. Yeah, Kevin, that's wrong, too. That's fine, but that's wrong, too. So we, we can both fake it. Let's do it. I read your What Goes On in Draft Rooms article today. You've been in draft rooms, and it sounds really interesting. It's a blast. And it also sounds really stressful. It's stressful. It's also a blast. It's really fun. I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I do, I do, I do miss it. Like I, I would like to be in a draft room this year. And uh, yeah, there's certainly big aspects of, of working in baseball. I do not miss. And I probably don't miss the hours of draft week either, for, to be honest with you. This is stressful and busy, but a lot, uh, a lot less of those two things than it is actually conducting a draft. But yeah, it's a blast, you know, and it's, it's, it's a really good time. It's just a, a very intense, long hour days of, of going through players, lining everybody up, getting ready to do it, and then finally doing it it's a it's a really good time it's it's something people treat you know obviously very seriously but it's baseball so it's fun too um like i put in the article on draft day itself everybody suits up and, and treats it like a, a bit of a formal celebration it's a it's a really good time and it's always exciting you know you're you're adding we'll stick with this year's version uh, you know 20 new players you know you're not going to sign all of them but you probably sign 18 to 20 of these guys and and 18 to 20 new players in your system hopefully you'll find someone who's a, a big star or someone who helps you acquire a big star it's a this is how you build a championship team through the draft so it's 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 always something that you know every team it's all kind of all hands on deck for a week here yeah so one thing that speaking of all hands on deck interested me is that you said not all teams actually have all hands on deck in the draft room it kind of baffles me that you wouldn't just have everybody in there i mean maybe you tell them to be quiet but <laughs> Yeah, no, it baffles me too, to be honest with you. And in my time with the Astros, they were definitely an all hands on deck team. All the area scouts were there, but there are a lot of teams that are just kind of cross checkers and above, uh, to, if you will. And it's, it's, I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's good to have the, the area scouts in there. Like I wrote, these area scouts, they know the player the best. They've seen the player the most. They are, they've probably talked to the player. They have bumped into the agent at games. They've probably met the player's family. You know, they maybe know this player since his high school days or, and then they know his pitching coach. They know his showcase coach. And, you know, they have so much information to give you about the player. And, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know how other teams, I only was in one team's draft room. So I'm not sure other teams do it, but you know, after the first few rounds, which is, you know, run by the scouting director in terms of the negotiations, you can really lean on the area scout as well to, to do the offers and the negotiations just because they know that player better. That player can, can start off with a better comfort level. And it, it's maybe a better way to start off a talk to call that head of the area scout who's already met the player, who knows the player, and the player knows who that is to say, hey, we're thinking of taking you in this round. Would you sign for $225,000 as opposed to some nameless scouting director saying, would you sign for $225,000? You know, and, and so... You know, these kind of things make a difference. And I, I can't even, I know teams don't do it, but having never been in the room with a team that doesn't do it, I can't imagine how a draft room even operates without the area scouts there. I mean, they really are such an important part of the process. And I also think, you know, and I wrote this as well, that it's bad for morale. And these guys and girls just kill themselves for six months. You know, they're, they're out seeing games six to seven days a week. Uh, you know, they're missing anniversaries, birthdays. Little League games, dance recitals, all that kind of stuff, and sacrificing everything to get everything ready for them. Then you lock them out in a, a, the draft room. I, I think it's a silly way to go. Yeah, I can kind of see it in round one. Yeah, and, and, and to be honest with you, even with the Astros, in round one, there was a separate room with maybe five people in it. You know, right. and you'd stick your head in and cock the ears if you needed to. But there was like a smaller room to the side, you know, taking care of the of the, the big pick. Then after that, and little by little, that that went away. And by honestly, that was really just for day one. By day two, um, everyone was in the same room. The, the the little room was closed. Was you know eliminated. It was just really for 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 that first pick where that kind of stuff happened. Yeah, like 
I, I think probably when a lot of people who are not very focused on the draft think of the draft, they know who their team picked in the first round and they might know who their team picked in the second round if it's, you know, an exciting guy if they went over slot there or something. Right. But the later rounds, it, it seems like, I mean, do you really expect the GM to be the most knowledgeable guy on the, I mean, I, I guess not 25th round guy this year, but on the oh, 17th yeah. round guy? And honestly, by the time you get past, you know, somewhere between the 6th and the 10th round, I mean, the GM is completely deferring to the scouting director and the and the, and the amateur scouting staff and, and things like that. And, and you know, some GMs, you know, look, I mean, GM's a, a job that involves a whole lot of work in a whole lot of areas. And often GMs have to excuse themselves after the 6th to 10th round and just say, I got to go take care of something. I'll, I'll come see you guys later and see how you're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah, we're trading for a fourth outfielder. Right, we're trading. It's, it's, and plus, it'd probably be even, even more so now that this thing's happening in July and it is trade season. And, and, and you know, I think a lot of trades talks right now are being impacted by by draft meetings where I can't, I can't do this right now. We're focused on the draft, uh, you know, especially with teams picking up high. Uh, and so, yeah, at a certain point, I mean, the GM, at a certain point, you, after the first few rounds, the GM doesn't know who this player is, who you're taking in the seventh round. He knows nothing about him. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's why get too involved with it. That makes sense. I mean, they surely can't know everyone on the board. No, and, not at all. And it's been, it's been fun for me to be honest with you. Like, you know, Eric and I are currently working on a draft preview piece that will go up or is already up really depending on when this goes out but you know, it'll be up on thursday and, and i did write about courtesy picks which mm-hmm. happened in the late 30s and you know you take craig biggio's son who's the one who's not that good at baseball um you know you take roger clemens son we took alex bregman's brother one year um and, and things like that and how those are going away now it's 20 rounds but it made me look up when these picks happen and and you know, to see those 30th plus round picks go off and look and go, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. How's he doing? And you're like, oh, he went and played indie ball after he got released. It's It's been fun to see some of those guys as well. Yeah. What percentage of those actually pan out? Because I, I have to imagine. I mean, Mike Piazza famously, but. Yeah. I mean, the courtesy picks, I think. I mean, everybody goes, oh, don't don't count these out. Look at Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza's the the only one. I yeah. mean, it's, it's it. You know, but I, what else with the Astros? They took Trey Cruz one year who. You know, it was a real prospect with the Tigers now and had a really nice career at Rice. But when the Astros took Trey Cruz, he already had made it clear to the industry that he's not signing for anything. He's going to Rice, you know. And so it was a courtesy pick, but of a good player. So there's, right. there's plenty of those as well. But yeah, it's, and it's, you know, and it's, it's the baseball people themselves aren't big fans of making them. It's always comes from, you know, ownership and a nudge from the PR people and, um, you know, and things like that. It's, it's kind of a wasted pick in a lot of ways. And sometimes, um, no, no, I was with the Astros. They had some success stories after the 30th round, even. And, you know, I know these aren't huge stars, but, you know, Tyler White and Josh James and guys like that. I mean, you can find players down there and there's plenty of them. And so kind of why throw away the lottery ticket just for like a nice story? I, I never really understood it. And, and the baseball people don't like to do it. They just kind of feel yeah. pressure. I know I remember one year and I, I was kind of I really was going through like late, late round Astros picks during my, my eight years in the room. I couldn't find it. But someone on there was like. Someone in the ownership's car dealer's nephew's friend or something like that. And it was just, can we take this guy? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, uh. and um, yeah, but you got to make people happy sometimes. When you get to those picks, are those like anywhere near the pre-negotiated contracts or semi-pre-negotiated contracts that you were talking about in the oh, yeah. article piece? Absolutely. For the most part, you know, you got to make, you, absolutely. You just, and it's, it's obviously a much easier negotiation and some of them are just begging to get picked and you call them and. Yeah, you know, it's a college senior. You're like, hey, will you sign for ten thousand dollars? They'll go, yep, and you'll go, yep, he's he's good to go. And you know, and it's like, and, and again, leaning on the area scout, especially with these late picks. Um, hey, call him and see if he'll take seventy five. It's really kind of all we have left. And he'll call him and say, oh, I got seventy five. It's all that's left. And he's like, I'll go. And he'll like, he's good to go. And sometimes the kid will go, I'm going back to school. And he'll go, he's not good to go. He's going back to school. We got to find another name. But yeah, I mean, it's it really is the the the, the overwhelming majority, ninety plus something percent of the picks you hear come off the board when you are watching or listening to the draft next week, starting on Sunday. The deal's been verbally agreed upon before the pick is made. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that didn't make sense to me before I learned more about the draft because I think of it as a draft. Right. When I pick someone in my fantasy draft, they don't know that I'm going to pick them. But it makes a lot of sense when the contracts aren't fixed slot levels and the players have other options and plenty of deals get done not based on where they're picked, but how much money they want that you right. obviously need to have some communication with people beforehand. Yeah, you have to have communication with him. And there's always, I actually didn't put this in my piece, but you know, I talked about the person or person or people whose job it is to manage the magnets. 
you know, when a player gets taken, get their magnet off the board and put it in a box so we don't, you know, you don't keep thinking about taking them. But at the same time, there's always someone whose job it is to kind of manage the pool and say, okay, we drafted Smith in the first round. He's getting 2.75. We met, you know, we took Johnson in the second round. We're overpaying him at, at 2.1. You know, right now we are 500 grand over the pool. We got to start saving. We got to start saving. And like, you know, third round, well, we got that guy for 400. So we just saved that money. And, and just keeping track of where you are in your pool money so you can A, sign all these guys and B, avoid the penalties for going over. Yeah, that seems to me like the kind of job that I would end up if I were doing this. <laughs> a little bit less discretion, more counting. That sounds more up my alley. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, you have spreadsheet skills. Exactly. <laughs> that is a very interesting aspect of specifically the baseball draft alone among professional sports, I think. The flexibility of slots and the you can go sign a bunch of underslot guys and say the third, fourth, fifth rounds and use the savings, but you do have to sign them. Was there somebody assigned to like figure out who the underslot guys were going to be to where you had a, a pool ready? You definitely have your, you know, uh, the Astros and most teams just have a, a senior board, if you will, right? Right. And so you have a senior board and you're like, you know, in case something gets squirrely and all of a sudden, you know, a kid you really like drops to you in the third round, but you really like him. He's going to need seven figures, but you really like him. You're like, let's do this. And we'll, we'll put, we'll find the savings elsewhere. You have these seniors lined up where you can just kind of call and, and say, look, you know, we, we're going to take you early, but this is all we're going to give you so we can save some money in the slot. And, and yeah, most of them are happy to go, obviously. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, like, you do, you definitely pre-plan those. You have a, you, you definitely have a senior board for, for if you do need to make a, a, a slot savings pick. That makes the, draft very interesting strategically to me is i mean you guys write about it a lot in your mocks as well trying to figure out who's going to be going under or who's going to be going over in the first round because i like that there are, that you can do both strategies you can go over early under late or under early over late right and you can also do the balance you know and that's the you know especially for these teams with multiple picks if you got you know three picks in the top 50 all of a sudden you might have eight million dollars to spend you might go wacky and and get this get us you know seven million dollar guy early then a couple five hundred thousand dollar guys you might also find three two and a half million guys you know what i mean and yeah. just kind of spread it out and find three really good first round talents with your three picks and there's there's all sorts of ways to go for it and and it, you definitely need to to be ready to kind of think on your feet and be ready to improv because and i think this draft's especially going to be this way the draft will surprise you uh, every time and so at some point, things are not going to go the way you expect them, and you're going to have something very unexpected available to you, and you're going to have to make decisions real quickly about it. Again, like it's something that I I should be following more, and I'm going to try to this year because it's just another place where there's interesting decisions to make. I don't know. like It's also – it feels very hidden if you're not paying close attention mm -hmm. in a way that I always think is cool. Like That makes for a lot of the the most interesting stuff in baseball is – yeah, just very under the radar stuff that's extremely, I mean, if you'll pardon this thing that I just set up inside baseball. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, like, I, I you know, I, you might know better than I do. I, my, the other drafts are a bit of a blind spot for me, but you know, like if you're the NBA and the NFL drafts do go off the board basically as a, as a talent ranking, because the numbers are kind of fixed, right? Yes. Yeah. So, more or less. Right. And that, that's not what happens obviously in baseball. Um, yeah. the, the, you know, it is not a talent ranking. It is a talent and value ranking. And so it turns into this very strange thing. And, and, and it's, it's probably why it's a better draft. It's just because it's more, it offers far more possibilities of something weird happening. Yeah. I think the, the lack of proximity to the majors also helps it. It does. Yeah. There's obviously a, a lot more wildness to it. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, in terms of, you know, obviously I think listeners to this show do not enter into the, what I'm about to say, but like for your casual baseball fan or, or your casual sports fan, like the NFL draft is a, is a marquee event. Uh, it's in prime time on, on the bigger network. And, you know, when you take, I don't know any college football players, when you take your, 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 your first round pick, that guy's expected to be a star for your team next year, you know, right. this coming season. And the same with basketball, you know, you get that lottery pick. This guy's expected to, to, you know, start and score 20 a game next year. Right. Uh, in baseball, especially if you take a high school kid, no, I'll see him in four years. Right. You know, you know it's, a, it's a whole different story. Like they're not playing, you know, they're, they're not playing next year for the big league team, uh, almost ever. Yeah. Mike Leak aside or whatever. Mike but, Leak aside. But I, I actually think that also leads to the, the valueness of it. The fact that a lot of these draft picks are like really value based in a way where, I don't know, every rookie contract is such a good deal in the other sports that you should just take the best player available, <laughs> sign him to the deal. Because mm -hmm. 
that's like his option. It also seems that the leverage of the junior signs in baseball is amplified for whatever reason. Yeah, and it's 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 weird because I do think like teams do have formulas that place kind of a value on every pick, a monetary value, and I've never really liked them, and I've always found them to be really flawed just because of the range of possibilities, if you will. Because you can say like on average, this you know picking this at this level produces this much value, and and the problem with that is is just that so many of those players are well above or well below that average. You know what I mean? There's way more standard deviations. Like you can pick that average, but you know, there's going to be a set of players who are home run and an even larger set of players who are going to be absolute zeros. You know what right. I mean? And so I think I think that screws up the average because most of these players are not going to be good. You know, you can line up the nearly 60 15th overall picks, if you will. And I'm going to count right now. Eight of them produce more than 10 war in their career, you know, eight. And so you can get excited about your mid first round pick, but, you know, chances are overwhelming is going to be a zero. And so, you know, it's, it's, that's the kind of thing that I, I think throws off these values so much. Yeah. I remember last year running a query for Jay where we looked at the, the most valuable players that have been picked in every round. And obviously, you know, you go far enough back, you can find somebody who's good in every round. But sure. then in doing so, I got the career war of every, you know, of every round. And yeah, the average value of somebody picked in the 27th round is zero. It's, it's just zero. Yeah. Like, doesn't matter if you're picking mean or median. The yeah, mean absolutely. Zero too. And it's it's interesting, like you know, and and you know, obviously, there's a million great stories of guys getting picked in the fifth round who became superstars or MVPs or the thirteenth round or even the twentieth round. But for the most part, you know, teams get it right. You know, when you when you yeah. go watch a baseball game and look at that lineup in terms of the the players who did enter baseball through the draft system, the the majority of those guys were seven figure players. Yeah, I think one thing that is is quite interesting about baseball to me is, uh, and this kind of feeds into the draft, you would say generally that because the game is very probabilistic over time and, you know, anyone can go three for four at a night when you're watching them. Right. But I went to a low A game uh, that Taylor Walls was playing in the year he got drafted and nobody else on that team was any good. Well, not no one was any good. The Hudson Valley Renegades. Mm -hmm. And without knowing who anyone was, I was like, the shortstop on this team is really good. He's probably a high draft pick. <laughs> he just was. Yeah. And it's interesting because I am not a seasoned amateur ball observer, but despite the fact that baseball seems like a huge crapshoot in this, like it's not as hard to get it right as you'd think just from looking at the numbers of it. I think you missed Vidal Brujan on that team, though. Was he really? He really team? was. I hope he wasn't playing that night. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Like, I mean, Taylor Walls, even though I don't think he had the best debut, it was still, you know, like you said, third round pick, and it was a you know, a guy coming off a college career at a, at a major program and who performed there. And he's just going to look more polished and more advanced than a lot of the players on that field that day. There's no question about it. But it's it's tough to, you know, it's it's, it's always about, and this is where, this is where the real kind of artistry comes in when you, when, you, when you learn from really good scouts. It's not about what the player is today. It's not about what he looks like right now. It's about what he's going to look like in five years. It's about right. what he's going to look like, how he's going to change, and, and what's going to help him become a better big leaguer. And that's why you kind of always need to trust those kind of things. It's, it's you know what he's telling you about what he is right now, super valuable. But the, the really good scouts, and the really good evaluators, and even the really good people who work with data are going to be telling you not what he is now, but what he can be. Right. I think that's, I don't know, like it. it's kind of cool to see. And if some team would do some... I mean, your article is a great version of this, but if some team would do some amount of like, here's what's going on in our draft room, here's how we think about this, it would make for a very, uh, not the actual, not how the sausage is made, but kind of a documentary. It would be yeah. thrilling watching. <laughs> I assume it's just, you know, <laughs> none of them are incentivized to do it, but. Yeah, certainly not. And, and and more and more teams these days really do lean on models. You know, the draft models become the most dominant voice in most teams' rooms over the last decade. And these models sometimes are just performance-based, and, and a lot of the more advanced ones incorporate more metrics than statistics, if you will. Yeah. You know, things that we have in terms of, of you know, TrackMan data and Rapsodo and, and exit velocities and all that kind of good stuff. And then, you know, a lot of them also, and I think the really smart ones, also incorporate the scouting reports as well to, to, to help explain, you know, give you a more holistic view of the player. But models, models rule the world now in the draft. Yeah. That makes sense to me, but I don't exactly know how easy it is to incorporate scouting reports into models because yeah, I mean, like a weird real, feedback loop. It, it is a weird feedback loop, and and some some believe in it and some don't. But I I, I think you know it's, you get in this weird spot where 
you know, if, if everything in the statistical and metric model, say this guy has average power, but all your scouts are saying future plus power, you move the power up a needle, you know, a little bit, you know what I mean? Right. Like, you know, it's, 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 that's an incredibly simplistic way to explain it, but it's that kind of thing. Yeah. Like the, I kind of get it directionally, but it's interesting that teams like seem to be pretty confident in it. I mean, they do. And I, and I think the other thing that scouts are, uh, you know, frankly better at than any sort of models is, and this obviously becomes a huge part of any sort of player evaluation system is, is defense. I, I think scouts are much better at telling you this guy's a plus shortstop or more importantly, when you're talking about draft players can stay at shortstop. Right. Which is, you know, probably the most important defensive question you can ask is, can he stay at shortstop? Can he play center? Can he catch? You know, yeah. and the difference of what happens in terms of the value of that player, if that player cannot do those things, drops significantly. And so that's a question that, that, that comes up for nearly every player. And, and you know, it, it, it's tough because you see, you know, every, every draft, you're going to see a million kind of like super good baseball players. And I'm using quotes now, right. like grindy guys from a college who perform, but they're not big tools guy and they're not super twitchy. And, but they're really, they're really good players. They're very good at baseball. They have great fundamentals. They're, they're, they have good hands and, and they play shortstop for a big college program often. And you watch them and you're like, that guy's not going to play shortstop. Like I've been to the Dominican Republic and that guy's not going to play shortstop. And so, you know, it, it's, it's such an important thing to answer because if he can't play shortstop, his possibilities are really reduced. Yeah. That's interesting to me especially those kinds of guys, because how do you separate somebody who is Alex Bregman, who is like a, a baseball player with quotes yeah. and played shortstop and maybe questionably has the tools to play shortstop in the majors. He could, he's, he's not every day though. He can in a pinch. Right. He and can, and he the can guy stand there, he can stand there. And the guy who's 90% of Alex Bregman and probably won't work out. That, right. that seems like a very interesting scouting question. And I just have no clue. Right. And I, I mean, just, you know, the, 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 the overwhelming thing was like, you know, a guy like Bragman, you could sit back and go, well, he's fine if he doesn't play shortstop because he's going to hit. That's, you know? and I so, mean, you yeah, know, he's a, he's a bad example because he's. Yeah. <laughs> if I got a guy who I, you know, you think is going to hit like 260 with 12, if he's a shortstop or a second baseman, that changes everything. Right. You know, and, and so you, you end up in those weird spots. Yeah. That to me is the reason that it, I just don't understand how models will ever take this over. Oh, they already have. Like, I I'm, I don't disagree with you, but in, in many ways, they already have. That's, like, just really interesting to me because I'm – I definitely – in situations that I don't understand, I lean towards trying to model it so that I can – Of course, re yeah. Reduce it to understandable things for me. And this one, I'm just like, no, this doesn't sound like the place for a model. Right. And and to be fair, there are, there, there are teams – and I – you know, I'm saying to be fair just to let people know they exist. I'm going to also say I strongly disagree with them who who – specifically do not put their scouting reports in to their model because they think the scouting reports just add noise, which I think is a disrespect to the scouts. But there are, there's, I know specifically of a GM who feels that way. And, and it's, 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 I think it's going to create for a, a worse draft and a worse process. I do enjoy an unnamed team who puts a very heavy weight on age. A lot of teams do. Yeah. Not just 18 versus 19, but 18 and 10 months versus 18 and eight months. Yeah, absolutely. And it, 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 there are teams who believe very, very, very strongly in that. And it plays a, it's a big needle mover in their models. And it's interesting because, um, this week's episode of Chin Music is going to be on all draft preview episode. Eric Longing is going to co-host and we're going to have quick and hit interviews with a lot of big draft names. Jim Callis, Kyle McDaniel, Keith Law, Carlos Colazzo over VA. Big draft name, Kyle McDaniel. He'll be pleased to hear that. Yeah, I mean, three and Kylie McDaniel, <laughs> but uh, we already recorded Jim because he's flying to Colorado tomorrow and Jim went on a, big old rant about age that I that I tend to agree with, which is, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, one of the top picks in this draft, year's draft, no matter what, Jordan Lawler, who is falling in models because he's 19, right? So he's a year older. And I get it. But like if he something weird happens and he goes to school uh, and he goes to Vanderbilt and all of a sudden he's draft eligible in two years and he's 21, then nobody's going to care about his age. You know what I mean? And so it, right. there's, an, there's an inconsistent application of the age, really. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it also doesn't seem to me that age should be like obviously in aggregate it's universally applied and works but it seems to me that the variations in like development for somebody right can vastly outstrip age differences yeah and you could get information on that by you know seeing them with your eyeballs right and i you know i want to get an extra year of the player in, in a pro development system as well but I, I don't think it's a killer like some teams do yeah and i don't really care if i get three extra months nearly as much although mm -hmm. again in, on average the guys who are three months younger will probably outperform 
Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, the Astros were very big on age and, and that's how it was talked about. It was like, how old is he? He's 18.6. Like, I mean, it, that decimal was there, you know, and, and, and it mattered. I understand the motivation, but it, it seems to me that that's a that's a place that I just don't get. And maybe I'm just not good enough at the numbers, but <laughs> I think you're better than you think. This has been going on, I think, long enough for me to mention that I am 35 point. Oh, boy, like point eight or something. And so I think that puts me out of draft age. But it, the, yeah, the, the Astros just did it by months to keep it easy. So like you could you could be 18.10 and that would be I, 18, okay. 10 months. Yeah. I am 35.10, so uh, I think my only chance of getting drafted this year is a courtesy pick. Yeah, I am uh, 52.3. and uh, we're, just, uh, we're just too old. Believe me, I, I broke the models when I was 18 as well, so it's not a problem. <laughs> Do you watch the draft? Uh, I never have, but I probably Are you going to watch this year? I'll probably watch at least a little bit of it this year. It's weird that it's All-Star Day. It's so weird and so and so bad. And, and, I, it, and, and a lot of that badness is selfishness, just because like... We have enough to do. You know what I mean? Like we have like the trade deadline and you and I have a trade value thing to work and it's the drafts going on and all this kind of stuff going on. Like I just think it's really weird. I I would have like, you know, I'm glad Eric's going like, but to cover the draft, like I kind of want to be sitting here at my desk with my three monitors and stuff like that. Right. And so I didn't even think about going to Denver and, and, and I think it's a really weird way. I think it's a really it's tough on the media in a lot of ways. And it's going to be, you know, like I said, I talked to Jim Callis, who's you know, a longtime friend and, um, you know, he's going and he'll be part of the, the, the TV presentation on, on MLB network and stuff like that. But, you know, in getting it's on Sunday, which is the same day as the futures game. Jim is not going to be able to go to the futures game, even though he's in Denver, you know, I mean, that, it's, it's that just, just has to be right for Jim Callis not to go to the futures game because drafts going, it's just, it's just uh, an inefficiency. We do, we found a market inefficiency and then I, mean, I get why they're doing it. Wait, and, so wait, why are they doing it? Because I get why they did it last year. I think it's to make it part of the, the whole weekend and try to make it a bigger event as opposed to just a day when there's games going on and stuff like that. I think they want it to be the focus of, of that day in baseball, if you will. And so it's best to do that during the all-star break. Yeah, you know, talking to teams, like they tend not to like it. Um, you know, I've, I've asked a lot of them what they're doing, what they've done for this extra month, and most of them just kind of said nothing, just sat around arguing about players. Um, <laughs> they they don't feel like they really gained anything by the month. They maybe spread out some of their regional meetings or some of their workouts and things like that, but they don't they didn't really gain anything by it. And and obviously, you know, the draft's still shorter this year. It's, it's twenty rounds instead of forty, and you know, we're probably never going to see forty again. You know, I think it'll probably settle in at twenty-five. Um, you know, maybe thirty. I, I doubt it. Um, you know, we'll see with the next CBA, which which will be you know the very last thing they figure out because it's always the very last thing they figure out. But you know, we're never going to see a really long draft again. It's going to be twenty twenty-five, and but I, that was the you know to get back to the question that that was the reason for it to kind of make it the story of the day as opposed to having it. I, I remember draft rooms where we you know. We're drafting and we're picking players and we're arguing and and one of the seven thousand TVs in the room had the Astros game on, you know, and, I, and that's a weird thing. Yeah, I also like why is it the day of the futures game? Um, <laughs> is, I mean, is sure. it that something that they want people to talk about? My, I think I think no matter how you look at it, like the futures game is the and again let's talk about general public and not dorks like you and I, but the futures game is the least interesting or not the least interesting but the least revenue generating uh the least tv audience of, of all the all-star weekend events well i could give a crap about the home run derby and haven't watched one for years but that's going to generate far more viewership than the futures game and so they got to do it at some point so that it's done that day so you the futures game and then you have you know all the media availability and party and stuff and then the game and, and all those things are much bigger stories than the futures game in terms of the general public but do you think the the draft is a bigger story than the futures game it's a good question. I think it's close, but like that's the most logical day to do it. I mean, let's say they shouldn't be doing it this week. Like I, there should be, they could make an off day in June, right? It's very simple. You, they could pick a Monday and just give everyone an off day and say that's the draft right. day, right? I mean, they could do it and that would be, I think, better for, for all involved. But if you're going to do it over All-Star Weekend, if, if, if that's set in stone, you can't argue that one out away. It feels like that's the day to do it, even though. Yeah, I guess that's know, true. It's, if it's it's a must Sunday be. Night. If it must be in this exact three-day span. Right. This is your window where you want to put it. Sunday is the one that makes sense, right? Yeah. That makes sense to me, I guess. I don't know. It doesn't seem like, like make the All-Star break one day longer. Then you're, Yeah. It's, then you're taking a day away from TV revenue and stuff like that. Yeah. It's all, it's all capitalism's fault, just like most things. Come on. <laughs> the very existence of the draft is uh, <laughs> very anti-capitalistic. That, so. That's its own thing, isn't it? Yeah. 
Well, Kevin, you and I have some trade value things to get to. As we well do. As you have a lot of actual draft things to get to. I do. So thanks for taking the time to walk me through the draft uh, for a person who understands very little of it, how it actually gets done operationally. And I will be eagerly anticipating your Chin Music podcast about, I guess, kind of more expansive draft coverage. I appreciate that. The podcast will be up on Friday morning. Eric and I will have a new mock-up uh, on the day of the draft, and, and we'll see how many picks we get wrong from there. Um, we will have a giant chat going during the draft night on Sunday, uh, and then we'll have continuing coverage throughout the early in the week next year when more picks fly off the board. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Bruce Miles and Mark Gonzalez for joining us. And like Kevin mentioned, if you're looking for more draft coverage, not only is there plenty over at Fangraphs.com right now, but Eric Longenhagen and many other guests will be on this week's episode of Chin Music, which is also out now. That's some Fangraphs Podcast Network cross-promotion for you, which you might have already been aware of if you were subscribed to the Fangraphs newsletter. Sign up for a good summary of the many cool things we have going on over at the site, as well as among our podcasts, Twitch streams, and more. We hope you have a great draft and all-star break, and we will catch up with you next week.